0: Or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore MOV number two L-I-V. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live, along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, treat movement as a lifestyle, not just an activity. With Moving to Live, we like to bring you interesting guests, and some of our most interesting guests come from recommendations from either past FitLab PGH or Moving to Live guests who say, hey, I know this guy or I know this lady, and you should interview them. That's the case with tonight's guest. A big thank you to Chris Yenikos of Pittsburgh. Chris was interviewed for FitLab PGH and our podcast for that. He's a cyclist and a Muay Thai fighter, and he also was a liver donor. And when we were talking, Chris said, hey, I know this guy, Nate Dunn of Data Driven Athlete, and he was a liver recipient. He's also a cycling coach, and I think he'd make a great interview for your Moving to Live podcast. He connected us, and in this part one of a two-part interview with Nate, he talks about his path to becoming a cycling coach and the influence that having a chronic disease had on his outlook of life and his choice of professions. I think you'll enjoy the podcast. And I think you'll learn a lot about how many people in the performance or movement field don't get there overnight, but it takes a long time, a lot of hard work, and in some cases, being in the right place at the right time. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live, the gentleman we are interviewing tonight, Nate Dunn of Data Driven Athlete. I can trace back through my two podcasts, Fit Lab Pittsburgh and Moving to Live, eight people. I want to cr- thank Chris Yenikos. Uh... From the Pittsburgh area for recommending Nate. And he connected me with Nate. And Nate was happy enough and eager enough and willing, most importantly, to sit down with me uh, over Zoom and talk to me in a time where he is out in Sacramento where it's about 60 degrees. And I'm interviewing here in Pittsburgh in the middle of the polar vortex. Hopefully, by the time this airs, it'll be warmer than the minus three degrees it is outside my office right now. So, Nate, thanks for taking time today for talking to Moving to Live.
1: Absolutely, Ben. Thank you for having me on.
0: First question I always like to ask people that I interview for Moving to Live is, what's your elevator speech of who you are? If somebody sees you and you're wearing a data-driven athlete uh, t-shirt or baseball cap or carrying a a, uh, water bottle with that on, and they say, oh, what's data-driven athlete? What do you you tell them?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I I usually say, um, you know, I have a cycling coaching company. And for someone that knows nothing about cycling, they generally have no idea what that is. So my next follow up, you know, my next follow up answer is generally, well, you know, cycling coaching is similar to personal training and that people are kind of giving me the details of their life, uh, what their goals are, what their objectives are. And then I'm designing, um, you know, a training prescription for them that's custom to their goals um, while providing feedback and support and, um, and accountability for that plan.
0: And I would imagine at the end of that, you've got half of the people who have eyes glaze over and the other half say, wow, that's pretty cool. I never knew they had that. And it leads into an even longer conversation.
1: Yeah, it depends on their follow-up questions, but where you can really go down the rabbit hole is to try and describe how one, um, you know, through remote coaching and through using data that's captured on a bike and, you know, online training platforms, you know, once you go into that, in that realm in terms of how the coaching is actually executed, um, that's where people split. You have, you have, you know, one group that's like, Oh, wow, that's amazing. Tell me more about how you can, you know, how do you know what someone does on the bike? And then, you know, someone else who kind of nods their head. And then I try and change the subject as quickly as I can to get, to get them out of that, that uncomfortable predicament.
0: And I know people who are in the know, who are Heavily involved in technology and endurance sports, none of this was possible before uh, platforms like Strava and Training Peaks came into an existence. I think Strava and things like that have blown blown out of the water the way that you can train athletes and the potential to train athletes. <sighs>
1: Yeah, definitely. So Strava and Peaks are kind of on, um, you know, they, they, they draw from the same, uh, I guess, the same user base, but they're kind of on different ends of that platform, whereas Peaks is kind of, as its name implies, really focused on training and kind of integrating a coach-athlete relationship. And then Strava has um, been really, really focused on kind of the social aspect of uh, kind of the locker room aspect of, of training and kind of how to create community. And then they dabble a little bit with, with training analysis, um, but, but pretty much anyone that's using training peaks is using Strava, you know, to some degree. And, uh, and many people that are, you know, using Strava, you know, are also using training peaks. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of cross, cross-pollination there.
0: And we'll get into that more in two weeks, but I, I think that's uh, the way the technology has changed even in the last five years is amazing.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: And I've got the advantage that uh, our listeners don't have as I ask you to fill out a brief questionnaire before I contact you and interview you. And to me, the most interesting part of interviewing people for moving to live is everybody's got a different story. Nobody woke up and was born and said from the time that they could think and talk that I'm going to be in, fill in whatever your profession is. And I'm sure you didn't wake up and know by the time you were six years old, hey, I'm going to be a cycling coach and I'm going to train cyclists and I'm going to use computers and information that I can gather from the bike. So growing up, I want to know, were you an active kid or? And if you were an active kid, was it because mom and dad said, get out of the door? Or was it because mom and dad were active and the kids just kind of, because you were there, it was kind of uh, by birth and by nurture, you were active because that's what mom and dad were doing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so even though I I, I could have never you know told you that I wanted to be a cycling coach, uh, from, from an earliest age, I remember, you know, I wanted to be a professional athlete, right? So that's before I had any understanding that you have to be Really, really good to be a professional athlete, right? Um, it's a different kind of stratosphere of of uh, genetics and and you know training availability and all that kind of stuff. But but I knew you know sport and and being involved in sport was the central part of my identity. Uh, you know since I could walk out of the house and my parents basically let me walk out of the house, right? So m- neither of my parents, I would say, were really active. I, they, they exercised. Exercise was a, uh, was a top priority for both of them, but neither of them were involved in sport. Neither of them were competitors. Um, neither of them knew anything about kind of the common, you know, uh, team sports, basketball, baseball, any of that kind of stuff. So for me, what really drew me to those experiences um, was that I was just outrageously competitive, you know, to the point where, Obviously, it was you know it was it was harmful and difficult you know for some of my friends and you know that's kind of been an evolutionary process I'm sure for anyone that's really competitive to realize that you know there are ways in which that helps you and then there are ways in which that you know doesn't help you at all. Um, but that love of competition is really what drove me. I was never interested in computer games, video games, even as those technologies kind of began. You know, we're kind of birthed through my childhood, and and lots of friends were involved in them. All I wanted to do was be outside, play baseball, play basketball. I lived near a college campus. So I was spending, you know, oftentimes three, four hours a day in the gym playing basketball. So it was everything about my life had to do with uh, sport, movement, um, athletics. So that's kind of what led me, you know, from from those early, kind of from those early experiences, I would, you know, as I started looking at college and kind of what what a career option might be, I really I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew that I, I I felt like the only way that I could really enjoy my career is if if it had, you know, had to do something with sport and competition and athletics.
0: I'm curious, was there a time in high school or middle school where you kind of narrowed it down and specialized in a single sport? Or were you kind of broad based through high school?
1: yeah so basketball was always my chosen sport it was It was the sport that i I played the most um really because of you know access to a gym so obviously year round you know sunlight none of those factors really impacted um, my ability to play basketball so that was a you know i i I played basketball all the time that was you know a big part of my my mm-hmm. high school um, and that's really where I, I I would say I began to develop kind of some of the leadership skills and and coaching skills that would eventually kind of you know Segue later into life, into into kind of my role as an educator and coach and whatnot. But yeah, b- basketball was really where I was kind of focused. Um, I love sports like baseball and whatnot, but you know, basketball was was an, uh, an, one that I found more successful.
0: And at what point did you realize, okay, I'm pretty much done with basketball because? my skill level has peaked and I know I'm not going to be able to get better and take it to the next level.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when I, when I went to college, you know, I, I, I would have been um, a, a marginal long shot um, to, to make the college basketball team. And, and, and so I was aware enough to know that like, this is how much work it would take um, to really make a contribution to the basketball team. If I was able to make the basketball team. And the other part of my life I've always been really involved in music and so, um, you know, there was a, a really good college choir that I that I tried out for, auditioned for, and that I made. And those were two separate paths. They're, they're very similar paths. They, they require, uh, you know, a lot of focus, a lot of discipline, practice outside of the classroom, but they're pretty much incompatible in terms of, you know, rigorous training schedule for, uh, you know, if you're playing on a collegiate sports team and then also um, travel schedule, performance schedule, um, you know, for college level choir. So for me, it was like, these two, you know, these, these two divergent paths. And I knew that one, I could be, um, I, I you know, I, I could be really, really good. And the other one, I could maybe make some positive contributions. Uh, but that's kind of where I, I began to see that, um, you know, basketball and, and kind of my involvement in
0: competitive sport at that stage in life was, you know, pretty, pretty much finished. And did you through college participate in the choir?
1: I did. Yeah. So all, all four years um, I sang in a really good choir and we were able to, you know, tour across the world. And, um, and so that was, that was a great, um, you know, those are some of the best memories of my life. And, and, and again, there's, you wouldn't think it because generally you don't have people involved. Generally you're drawing from two separate populations, right? You have choir or music nerds and you have jocks. Right? And those are not two populations. They get together. Right. So I felt like I had this incredible perspective where I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like when you perform at a high level, especially like in, in a choir, it is just like competing and dominating in a basketball game, like with a team. I mean, it's the, you know, uh, it's the same kind of, you know, striving for excellence and teamwork and, and camaraderie, all those types of things, you know, that, that draw people in a sport. Um, anybody that's been involved in like, you know, ensemble type you know, choir or band, uh, you know uh, that kind of stuff. They they would describe those same things. So, so yeah, it was an um, awesome experience. I, I got, you know, I was um, I got to to learn from one of the best teachers of my life, who deeply impacted my life, um, and 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 who you know whose principles still impact me today as I you know and back into the you know into the sport world.
0: And I'm curious, while you were participating in the choir, I know some people when they go to college and they lose the organized sports because as you did, as I was the same, you realize I'm not quite good enough to go to that next level and do the same things that I did in high school. Did you continue to be active? Did you do intramural basketball? Did you do some sort of other activities or did you focus all of your energies on saying, I'm going to do the academics and I'm going to do the best that I possibly can in choir?
1: Uh, no, I, yeah, I was still really involved. Yeah, I played all the intramurals. I um, you know, different intramural sports. I had, you know, a, a strong group of friends that I had gone to school with and then I had known. And so we had, you know, a lot of fun. So I, I continued to continue to play an intramural sport. Intramural sport, uh, anybody listening to this, <laughs> I'm sure they could attest to this, but it's this strange world of like people who think they're better than they ever actually were. <laughs> Um, you know, and and so there's, there's not a lot of, um, self-awareness where it's like, look guys, like we're on the B court at the, you know, no one cares about this game. Like we're all, we were all kind of decent in high school, uh, but none of us are very good. And yet there's this inflated sense of self-importance where it's like, you know, game seven of the NBA finals. Um, so, so yeah, I was involved in intramural sport, but at the same time, I was getting my undergraduate degree in exercise science um, as well as my teaching credential. And so I was also um, refereeing intramural sports, right? So that's what gave me this different perspective on um, and I was really respected because I I knew the sport, I knew the sport of basketball. Um, so I think I was I was one of the best referees, and you know, I was I was the championship games and stuff like that, but I mean, I, I had a fun time just, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a strange experience when you're refing your peers in college and you're throwing somebody out of a game um, who you're seeing at the cafeteria or something like that. Um, that's intramurals. <laughs> that's intramurals for you.
0: I just had a flashback when you were saying that I played intramural basketball at my college. It was a small college, but as you said, everybody treats it as game seven. My claim to fame is my team's for all four years, we made it to the championship game and we're two and two. There you go.
1: I mean, you you, you need some type of you know commemorative uh, plaque to uh, to remind you to remind you of this glory.
0: And it's uh, it really gives you the opportunity. I think I think for I'm I'm wondering since I'm quite a quite a few decades removed from college, I'm wondering how many people or if people today take it still as seriously in the age of participation trophies, et cetera, because. I know there is good. There's good competition, and very often you get athletes from other sports playing, and I think it's beneficial for encouraging people to move all of their life. It's 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 too too often people say, "Well, I'm done. I'm I'm not good enough to play an official sport, so I'm just going to sit around and drink beer."
1: Oh, totally. I mean, intramural's, um was was awesome. I had a ton of fun. You know, it, it, it there's a vibrant community kind of around those games, and um, you know, um, but it's a it's a the dynamic that was most interesting to me was the fact that in a in a in a regular coaching environment you know you kind of have a hierarchy of a coach assistant coaches and then you throw all these people in an in a real court where nobody's the coach nobody's there to kind of check egos and um yeah, that, it, it was, you know, th- those were some of the uh, more interesting memories. But yeah, it was, it was a ton of fun. And it's, it's an important part to kind of gather all those other, you know, all the, all the rest of that student population, that's, you know, which is most of them um, that aren't involved, you know, in the, the varsity level.
0: And I'm curious how you decided on the exercise science and teaching major, because I know, if you're involved in a fairly high level music thing, sometimes there's the thought of I'm going to be a music major, and maybe try to take this music thing to the next level.
1: Yeah, so I um, I did my first two years of, uh, of of general ed classes, and not to get too far down a rabbit hole because we could with this, but so I finished I finished here of general ed classes. I had no idea what I, what I wanted to do. And recently, the movie uh, a movie called The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio had had come out, and I remember sitting in the theater watching this movie, and I remember this scene from The Beach, and there's a song from electronic artist kind of from the early two thousands, Moby, and it comes on, and I'm like. I got to go to that beach. I don't know. I don't know where it is. I don't know what's, well, I didn't know where it was in, in the movie. It was, it was portrayed as being in Thailand. So anyways, two years under uh, kind of general classes. I'm like, I have no idea what I want to do. I need to go somewhere. So I went to Thailand for a year. I taught English there and it was in Thailand teaching English when I was like, I got to be involved in sport. And I think I'm, I'm one of my, one of my most natural gifts is education and coaching. It was something I had always done kind of in leadership roles, like captain roles on teams or, um, so I came back to school and then, um, started up my exercise science degree then with a, with a major in education. So to your point about music, that was kind of a self-selection process where I, um, I could learn music really quickly, but I could not read music at all. I couldn't play any instrument. Uh, I, I, I could play the drums, but I couldn't play any, uh, melodic instrument. So in many ways, I was way out of my depth. But I could listen to music and I could hear it and, and I could I could kind of conceptualize it. But that doesn't take you to the point of a music major. That takes you to being able to, you know, uh, t- to perform, you know, in a group well, but not, you know, not, not
0: beyond that. So. so you come back from Thailand, you finish up your degree and you get certified to teach. That's still a big difference from what you're doing today. What was the next step after graduating from high school? Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Graduating from college, I don't want to short shortchange the, the, the college experience.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, no. So, um, yeah. So I, I finished up, and then um, make a long story short. I, I you know. Make a long story short. I started started teaching. So I was teaching high school uh, at a small a small private school. I was also um, so I was coaching basketball. Um, I was teaching health and physical education, and then I was also the athletic director at that school. So, as you might imagine, um, the demands on my time were. Um, were such that i I had the perspective that this this was not going to be sustainable for me. Um, that this is before my wife and I had had kids, and I started kind of projecting out in the future. And I I, st- I started feeling like unless this job and this position was going to be my my life and my family's life to some you know to some degree, that it wouldn't be possible for me to be excellent in that role, trying to do all those things. That as a teacher, my only Option would be to basically kind of phone it in and be mediocre. And I feel for teachers. I taught for five years. Um, well, I taught for three years full time, and I'll get to that in a minute. But I feel for teachers because oftentimes they're they're forced with this um, with this really unfair uh, choice, and that is you be excellent at what you want to do. But if you do that, you're going to have to do it at the exclusion of these other areas of your life, be it your health. Uh, be it your your spouse, be it your kids, um, and that's a. I don't like <clears throat> on a personal level. Whenever I'm afforded those types of options, it makes me angry, <laughs> um, and it and it makes me want to it makes me want to figure out some some solutions. So, I taught full time for three years. I loved teaching. I loved the kids that I taught, um, but. Like I said, I didn't see that as being sustainable. So I, I talked to our principal at the time and she agreed to allow me to go to part-time. I went to part-time and then went, went to graduate school full-time uh, while I was still teaching and coaching. Um, and my hope was, is to, to finish my graduate degree in, in exercise science. Um, and that would at least give me uh, kind of a pause to have some options. If the, if the teaching situation were to change, um, that would be great. I would still have some options or um I had just begun to ride. I had never ridden a road bike uh, my whole life, so um, I just be you know begun to ride more actively and then started competing, started racing and I was like man i I got it if I can, I'd love to make more of my life about the bike um, and to combine that with what my natural skill set is, um, which is teaching and educating so that's when I started my coaching company um, data driven athlete kind of on the side, and then um that was eventually kind of the the transition was. Um, lots of other, th- couple other things that, going on in there in terms of end-stage liver disease and a liver transplant. But that kind of sandwich in the middle then was was kind of my uh, my transition into into coaching, resigning from my teaching job and then coaching full time.
0: I'm curious how the cycling came about because what you've described, having played a lot of baseball growing up and, and basketball and continuing to play basketball. In college, that's a little more anaerobic than getting out on the road and doing some road cycling. And I know I've interviewed uh, your friend Chris, and I've interviewed a couple of other cyclists for my podcast FitLab Pittsburgh. And having done some cycling myself, we all have stories of the first race, or the first couple of races, or group rides where we started with the pack and we ended up somewhere way off the back, wondering if anybody else existed. So, how did you decide I'm going to pick up a road bike and I'm going to start road bike racing? Because I think you could argue that's one of the more difficult sports to perform physically just because of the high rate of work it takes and the skill that's involved with it
1: yeah so yeah i had never done any endurance sport in my life it had all been kind of team sport um team sport ball sport type type stuff so when i when i graduated from college um i now was not doing anything i was i was wasn't playing any sports i wasn't playing any mineral sports um so i started running I'm, i'm like i had put on um a little bit of weight i mean more weight than i had ever had and I, I was bigger than I've ever been in my life, but I wasn't, you know, I hadn't like totally fallen off the bandwagon. Um, so I was like, I got to start doing something. I'm like, I, what am I going to do? Am I going to run? Or so, so, so I, I, I was, jo- I started jogging for a little bit and and that was just so miserable and so terrible that it just even, you know, but I was like, okay, I'll suffer through this. I'm like, I need to, I need to get some form of exercise. Right. I mean, I've been active my whole life. Um, I, 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 I can't, you know, I'm not just going to sit around. So a friend um, who had been trying to get me to ride for a while said, why don't you try riding a bike? So I rode a bike, I did one ride. And then I was like, Oh, that's amazing. And then I went on Craigslist, I bought a bike. um, And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to start riding a bike. Um, So I rode for a little bit. And then I went on a group ride, kind of accidentally, and experiencing what it's like to race, you know, even in a group ride context, right? You're, You're getting kind of a an impromptu feeling of what a what a race is like and it totally changed my life. I was like I've been involved in sport my entire life, but racing a bike is the most it required the most of me than than any physical activity ever, just in terms of, you know, level of exertion but then also what's required cognitively to still make choices and and you know all that kind of stuff. So I didn't know anybody. I just went online and I said, where's a bike race? So I signed up for a bike race um, in the San Francisco area and I bought a book on how to, how to race a bike. <laughs> so I show up to the bike race and my wife is helping me pin my number and I did the bike race. And I was like, uh, that, that was like a peak experience of my life. I'm like, yeah, that was one of the coolest things ever. So that was kind of where, where it led you know, that's, that was kind of where it started in terms of being more, um, and then I, you know, started reading more about it really. And then at that point, really for the first time, even though I had studied exercise science in my undergraduate degree, there was no, there was no um, anchor point for interest in that topic until I began to ride a bike, because then all of a sudden, all of these concepts and, and you know, especially the connection between work ethic and training and speed and you know, higher the higher level of competitiveness on a bike it's this really really strong connection that you don't see as much in you know team sports right you're talking about kind of a longer time frame to see improvements in, in those whereas with cycling it's like man you can get to work and you can make incredible gains in your uh, you know in your performance when, when you first start out so that's kind of where that where that started and then i started reading more i started reading about this thing called a power meter and i talked to my wife about it i'm like this is really expensive but I need to buy a power meter. I mean, these, these sound amazing, right? So once you added that element of data, then it was like my engagement in the sport went to another level, right? The the interest. And it wasn't just that it was more numbers. It was that it made cycling more fun and more accessible. And uh, it wasn't just about a more effective training tool. It was about a, a more accessible way to engage with everything I was doing on the bike. And then that's kind of what, um, where I started, you know, kind of, throwing myself full throttle into cycling while I was still working. And then eventually, um, you know, transitioning into coaching.
0: And I think it's a very rare cyclist who at some level is not some form of a data geek or a tech weenie. And I say that the positive way.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, cycling is a, is a sport that attracts your type a highly competitive person. And those are often people that are, you know, in, in engineering fields or you know tech fields, um, people that kind of think they see the world in numbers and um, and objectivity and 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 so yeah, it's a you know when I bought a power meter, obviously you you know you were there uh, you know much earlier. But even when I bought a power meter, they had not yet really begun to proliferate. Um, and then now, you know, when I would have conversations with new athletes, I would say, I really think you should buy a power meter. I can coach you so much more effectively. And now I don't even have that conversation anymore. I say, what power meter do you have? That's basically my, my, my question to new athletes, just so I can have a better idea about that. But um, so, yeah, it's, 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 a really, um, it's a really cool transition, um, you know, not, not only from a personal level, engaging in the sport, but obviously in your ability to coach and offer, you know, really constructive feedback for people.
0: And I'm curious, you mentioned a few minutes ago that while all this was going on, you were suffering from liver disease. How much of an effect did that have in saying, this is what I'm going into? And how much of it did it have an effect as you recovered saying, you know, cycling, this is kind of, and I don't say this jokingly, this is like a medicine. This is improving my quality of life and improving my health.
1: Yeah. So anyone that's, anyone that has a chronic illness, they might, um, They probably, they might manage this in a different way. But for me, my liver disease was kind of smoldering, and it was slowly uh, getting worse. Um, But it wasn't until it was slowly getting worse. And then all of a sudden, I kind of fell off a precipice, and I was, you know, getting really, really sick. Um, But in between all that time, you are forced to kind of manage your fatigue levels. And the problem, I was still racing. I was still competing. I was still doing, uh, you know, I was, I was able to be competitive in races. And in the back of your mind, you're like, am I tired because I'm racing? Am I tired because, um, you know, uh, because of liver disease that I have? Or So for me, my basic approach was like, no, you know what? I'm not going to go down that road. I'm just going to race and I'm going to compete until until I can't. Because I can't deal, I can't manage that that back and forth kind of conversation. So I was still competing, still racing, still training until um, my health had really, really begun to deteriorate. And um, I went in to get some, get some testing done and the doctor, you know, the doctor informed me that I had, you know, osteoporosis in three different spots in my body. And at that point, our daughter had just been born and my kind of, pri- I had resigned from my teaching job. I was just finishing up my graduate degree. But my primary uh, you know, job at that point was taking care of my daughter when, when my wife would be at work. So I thought, and I was like, man, if I crash in a crit, I can't do anything. I, I, I'm not even going to be able to take care of my daughter and change her diaper. So that was kind of the point where I was like, all right, this is it for me until, until we kind of see the other side of this in terms of the transplant. And um, so I stopped, I rode, you know, occasionally um, I, I tried to stay as healthy as I could kind of leading into the transplant. Uh, but yeah, then getting back, um, you know, cycling was, I mean, that was the avenue of health back for me. Um, but it's a, it's a, it can be a burden too, because when you're a competitor, um, all you want to do is get faster. And when you're recovering from something like a liver transplant, you don't get to define the rules of that, right? Um, as much, I mean, to some degree, obviously you can make good choices, but so it, it, it you know—it was. It it has been tormenting at times, and that's been something I've been trying to work on personally to, to kind of say here is what I want to do on a personal level, athletically and competing, but then I have to I have to offer myself this flexibility to say, but I have no idea next month the picture might look different. So so yeah, you know the the bike has been the avenue for me to to get back to even better shape than I ever was uh, before my transplant, and to obviously experience all kinds of, you know, amazing things and, and, and meet really cool people. Um, but the other side of that is, is that, um, I think anyone, any competitor, they have to manage that drive to get better and that drive to compete with, um, the unpredictability of life, you know?
0: I'm curious with, you mentioned that you were diagnosed with osteoporosis and I know that there's some literature out there on high level cyclists, that that's something that's very common partially because at the very high level, the idea is if you're not riding the bike, you're resting. How much of the osteoporosis, what do you think was related to your cycling and how much is linked to the fact that you had a chronic liver disease?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm not sure about that because even, you know, the the research is really interesting because it shows that, you know, high level cyclists, obviously um, greater risk for osteoporosis, but then even people riding, you know, between five and eight hours a week. So we're not even talking, we're talking about, I mean, your average cyclist is, is in that range. So certainly could have been a result of writing. Um, but I wasn't writing that much. So that's kind of one of those questions where, I don't know, it's, it's, you know, um, it could have been, it could have been either. It could have been a combination of both. I doubt that my, there, I'm very doubt. It's very doubtful that the 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 severity of my osteoporosis would have been driven by, uh, you know, a non-weight bearing exercise, especially because I was involved in uh, explosive type exercise my whole life, right? And that's when you're building, you know, your your, your bone mass. Um, so I don't know what it was, except that you know that's been a um, an attempt of mine post transplant to try and make sure that I'm I'm supplementing my cycling with. Um, with strength training with that being kind of the primary objective. And that is, is that, you know, I've, I've got, I think most cyclists, um, um, should be thinking about that seriously and, um, and probably making a choice, um, to, to, you know, to complement their, their cycling with, with either some type of impact or strength training, but especially obviously in my case, um, you know, I would be, it would be a really bad choice to kind of neglect that.
0: We're talking with Nate Dunn. He is the owner of Data Driven Athlete. He's told us his story about how he had made the decision to switch from teaching to coaching after getting a master's degree for a better quality of life and doing something that he really enjoyed and still allowed him to have some sort of an impact in other areas of his, of his life rather than becoming unidimensional We're going to come back in two weeks and talk to him more about data driven athlete and his experience working with cyclists because I think it's very common for people to say, Well, I've got a bike. I don't need a coach. I can just get online and read a couple of articles. And I think in many instances, you can save yourself a lot of time, a lot of headache, and in many cases, the prevention of injury by hiring somebody who can tell you objectively, Yes, do this. No, don't do that. So, Nate, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live. part one of the interview, I'm looking forward in two weeks to talking to you more about specifically data-driven athlete and your experiences with using data with cyclists. Absolutely. Thanks, Ben, for having me on. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both, underscore, mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.